Section 32 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 4. Since May 1547, Ugolino waited in daily expectation of orders to start, but it was not until December 1st that he left Rome with the bulls that decided the fate of Portugal. It was probably in January 1548 that he reached Lisbon, where fresh delays occurred in settling details, and only on March 24th was the agreement respecting Silva's temporality signed. Zhao grumbled at the assignment of the accrued revenues to the fabric of St. Peter's. He had not agreed to surrender them, and did not intend to do so, but he finally submitted. The pardon was published in Lisbon, June 10th, the prisons were emptied, and the abjurations, we are told, for the most part were private. Thus, after a contest lasting through seventeen years, the Inquisition was fastened upon Portugal and, in reviewing the kaleidoscopic vicissitudes of the struggle, we cannot trace, in any act of the Holy See, a higher motive than the sordid one of making, out of human misery, a market for the power of the keys and selling it to the highest bidder. The new Christians promptly sought to save a fragment from the wreck, by obtaining the publication of the names of witnesses, based on the canonical provision that they were to be suppressed only in the case of powerful delinquents, who could wreak vengeance on accusers. With this view, they procured from Paul III a brief of January 8, 1549, defining that new Christians and others could only be deemed powerful men in respect to the communication of witnesses' names, provided they were nobles exercising jurisdiction over vassals, public magistrates, or officers in the royal palace. There seems to have been some delay in the publication of this, but, when it came to the knowledge of the king, he sent, August 13, 1550, a copy of it to Julius III, with an urgent request for its revocation as it would prove the total destruction of the Inquisition. A long struggle ensued between the Portuguese ambassadors and the new Christians, in which, for some time, the latter were successful. Into these details it is not worth while to enter, but the final incidents are too illustrative of the course of business in the papal court to be passed over. Paul IV seceded to the pontificate May 23, 1555. While yet a cardinal, he had expressed opposition to the brief, and the ambassador, Afonso de Lencastro, with the assistance of the Grand Inquisitor, Cardinal Alessandrino, the future Pius V, had not much difficulty in winning him over. The brief of revocation was drafted and approved and sent to the Deteria for dispatch. The deputy there chanced to be a Castilian New Christian and, when the ambassador's secretary called for the brief, he was told that Paul III had done a just and holy thing and that in Portugal the inquisitors wanted to burn everybody. The brief was withheld and, when complaint was made to the Pope that his datary refused to obey orders, he promised to look into it. Nothing more could be got from him at the time, and his reckless war with Philip II gave him ample occupation for the next few years. Lencastro, however, continued his efforts until replaced, in April 1559, by Laurenzo Perez de Tavora, who brought urgent instructions to procure the brief of revocation. Peace with Philip was proclaimed April 5, 1559, but Paul IV, in his 84th year, was broken and was moreover engrossed with his prosecution of Cardinal Maron. Lencastro and Perez, however, labored with the Congregation of the Inquisition, which, on July 22nd, approved of the revocatory brief. 
They carried it at once to the Pope and, with the aid of the Cardinal Alessandrino, obtained the promise of his signature. To their dismay, they learned the next day that it had not been signed. Paul had called for his signet ring, had drawn it from its bag, and was about to append it, when he glanced over the brief. The preamble did not suit him, for it was not easy to give a reason for revocation without inferring blame. He laid it aside, and this was almost his last act, for he died August 18th, and for three weeks no briefs had been expedited. The conclave was prolonged, and Pius IV was not elected till December 26th. Perez lost no time, and, on his visit of congratulation, January 2nd, 1560, before the coronation, he urged the matter on the Pope. Cardinal Alessandrino was sent for and gave his approval. The secretary Aragonia was instructed to draft the brief and it was, as Perez thought, the first one signed after the coronation. Perez attributed his success to the profound secrecy which kept the measure from the knowledge of its opponents, and, in the midst of his self-congratulation, he twice solemnly warned Cardinal Henrique to use his powers with moderation for, under the brief, it would be easy to burn the new Christians. It was in vain that they sought to obtain its revocation. Their agents and their memorials were alike disregarded, and the suppression of the names of witnesses became the established practice in Portugal as in Spain. All hope of relief, moreover, was extinguished when, in September, Prospero de Santa Croce was sent as nuncio. Cardinal Henrique was reappointed legate a la terre in all matters concerning the faith, thus cutting off all appeal and all interference with the holy office. The earnest persistence with which permission to withhold the names of witnesses was sought shows how great a hindrance to condemnation their publication proved, and this probably explains the fact that, during the continuance of the prohibition, the activity of the Inquisition was restricted. A list of autos de fe, as complete as research could compile, indicates that of the three established tribunals, Lisbon celebrated no auto prior to 1559, nor Coimbra until 1567. There may be some defect in the archives to account for this, and they may have been better preserved in Evora, for there we find autos recorded in 1551, 1552, 1555, and 1560. After this, they became more frequent and increased in severity, but, up to the time of the conquest by Philippe II in 1580, the whole number of autos recorded in the three tribunals was only 34, in which there were 169 relaxations in person, 51 in effigy, and 1998 penitents. The insignificant number of relaxations in effigy, when compared with the multitudes that figure in the early Spanish autos, would seem to indicate that they were merely those who escaped from prison or died during trial and that, in the absence of confiscation, the Portuguese inquisitors were not earnest in tracing the heresies of ancestors or in following up the records of fugitives. The question of confiscation, in fact, had been left by Paul III in the hands of the king, who found in it a financial resource for his bankrupt treasury by granting, for a consideration, decennial periods of exemption, a practice continued by the regency after Joao's death. Probably in 1568, the new Christians hesitated to pay the price demanded, for a brief of Pius V, dated July 10th of that year, recites that the last term had expired on June 7th, and that King Sebastian had not renewed it, finding that it served as an incentive to heresy, and that he had asked the Pope not to listen to appeals. This Pius willingly promised and withdrew all privileges which the new Christians might enjoy. Doubtless this induced them to come to terms, for the exemption was renewed. After this decennium, Sebastian again granted it in his efforts to provide for his ill-starred African expedition. 
but Henrique, on seceding to the throne, felt his conscience much disturbed at this concession to apostasy. He applied to Gregory XIII, who, by a brief of October 6, 1579, renewed the one of 1568, and permitted Henrique to revoke the grant made by Sebastian. As Portugal the next year passed into the hands of Philippe II, we hear nothing more of exemption from confiscation. It is somewhat remarkable that Joao neglected to extend to his colonial possessions the blessings of the Inquisition. The new Christians had largely availed themselves of the opportunities presented by the colonial trade, and had established themselves in Goa and its dependencies. The comparative freedom there had doubtless encouraged them to observe less caution than at home, for St. Francis Xavier had scarce begun his missionary labors when he was scandalized by what he saw and, on November 30, 1545, he wrote urgently to the king as to the necessity of an inquisitorial tribunal. No response was made to his appeal. Joao died June 11, 1557, leaving the crown to his grandson Dom Sebastian, a child in his third year, under the regency of the dowager Queen Catalina, who resigned it, in 1562, in favor of Cardinal Henrique. The regency was more mindful of the spiritual needs of the Indies than the late king, and in March 1560, Henrique sent to Goa as inquisitor Alexo Diaz Falsao, who, by the end of the year, founded a tribunal which in time earned a sinister renown as the most pitiless in Christendom. When Lorenzo Perez, the ambassador at Rome, learned through Egypt of this establishment, he expressed to the regency his apprehension that this zeal for religion would prove a disservice to God and to the kingdom, for it would drive to Basora and Cairo many who would aid the enemy in both finance and war. His prevision was justified more fully than he anticipated, for, to the activity of thy tribunal was largely attributable the decay of the once flourishing Indian possessions of Portugal. After exhausting the new Christians, it turned its attention to the native Christians, who rewarded so abundantly the missionary labors of the Jesuits, for Portugal did not follow the wise example of Spain in exempting native converts from the Inquisition. It was impossible for these poor folk to abandon completely the superstitious practices of their ancestors, and any relapse into these, however trifling, was visited with the rigor with which were treated similar lapses by the conversos of the peninsula. Even Philippe II recognized the impolicy of this, and, in 1599, he procured from Clement VIII a brief empowering the inquisitors to commute the penalties of relaxation and confiscation for relapse, up to a third relapse but no further, and the faculty was limited to the term of five years. It is not a little remarkable that no tribunal was established in Brazil, although the new Christians who abounded there proved a very troublesome element, from the encouragement which they gave to the Dutch in their efforts to obtain a foothold. There was a commissioner there, but his powers were limited to collecting evidence and transmitting it with the accused to Lisbon, where they were tried and punished. It may be worth noting that, in the Treaty of 1810 with England, Portugal bound itself never to establish the Inquisition in its American possessions. In general, it may be said that the Portuguese Inquisition was modeled on that of Castile. A series of edicts issued by Dom Sebastian and Dom Henrique, and confirmed by later kings, granted to officials and familiars the privileges, exemptions, and immunities which they enjoyed in the sister kingdom. This gave rise to similar quarrels and competencias, and to a multiplication of the privileged class even greater than in Spain. In 1699, 
we find Don Pedro II endeavoring to enforce a decree of 1693, which limited to 604 the familiars allowed in the larger towns, while small places were to be reduced to one or two each. They were required to possess qualifications entitling them to promotion as inquisitors. They performed such duties as might be assigned to them, and, in the consulta de fe, they replaced the Spanish consultores, with the distinction that they cast decisive and not merely consultative votes. To render a sentence legal, at least five votes were required besides that of the ordinary. There was no appeal from a definitive sentence, for the reason that it was not made known to the culprit before the auto in which it was pronounced but all interlocutory sentences and intermediate proceedings were subject to appeal, and the Supreme Council came to exercise minute supervision over every act of the tribunals even earlier than we have seen was the case in Spain. The minuteness, indeed, of the details prescribed in the Regimento of Inquisitor General de Castro, printed in 1640, left little to the discretion of the Inquisitor and their systematic arrangement in an authoritative code of procedure affords a strong contrast to the cumbersome and often contradictory cartas acordadas which lumbered up the secreto of the spanish tribunals although the object of the inquisition was the purification of the land from judaism it was not confined to this and it early proved that it could exercise its blighting influence on the intellectual development as well as on the material prosperity of portugal among the learned foreigners whom André de Gouveia, at the request of Joao III, brought to Portugal, in 1547, to found a college of arts in his University of Coimbra, was George Buchanan, as professor of Greek. Gouveia died within a year, and soon afterwards the foreigners were driven out to be replaced by Jesuits, who were becoming the dominant power in the land. The process was a simple one. Buchanan and two others were prosecuted by the Inquisition and thrown in prison. The accusation against the former was that he had written a poem against the Franciscans, that he had spoken disrespectfully of the friars, that he had eaten meat in Lent, that he had said that St. Augustine's views on the Eucharist were akin to those condemned by Rome, and generally that he was thought to be ill-affected towards the Holy See. After incarceration for eighteen months, he was sentenced to reclusion in a monastery for instruction by the monks, whom he describes as good-natured enough but wholly ignorant. On his liberation, Zhao offered to retain him, but he took the earliest opportunity to escape to England. A still more effective deadening of intellectual aspiration was the persecution of Damayao de Goez, the foremost scholar of Portugal in the 16th century. When a youth of 22, he had been sent to Flanders as secretary to the Portuguese factory. It was not until 1528 that his thirst for learning was awakened. He studied Latin, went to Padua, and speedily made himself known to scholars throughout Europe. In 1545, Joao recalled him to Portugal, where rivalry arose between him and Simon Rodriguez, the Jesuit provincial, who had met him in Padua and now accused him to the Inquisition for heretical utterances made there nine years before, the details of which he could not remember, but had a general impression that they were Lutheran. Nothing came of this, and, in 1550, Rodriguez repeated his accusation with the same result. Goez made enemies in his literary career and, in 1571, the denunciation of Rodriguez, made 26 years before, was resuscitated. He was now 70 years old, he had been an invalid for 20 years, and was scarce able to stand, but he was cast into a dungeon April 4, 1571, while his trial dragged on. 
No further evidence of any account could be found against him, but he freely confessed that, when he went to Flanders, he fell into the errors of considering indulgences of little value, and that general confession sufficed. That after learning Latin and studying, he had abandoned these errors and had since been strictly orthodox, at the request of Cardinal Sadoleto he had written to Melanchthon, in hopes of winning him over, and he had given a letter of introduction to Luther to Fray Roque de Almeida, whose object was to acquire a knowledge of the heresy so as to confute it. On this confession exclusively was based the sentence, which declared him to be a Lutheran heretic, but considering that it was when he was an ignorant youth of twenty-one and that, on learning Latin, he had abandoned his errors, he was mercifully condemned only to reconciliation, confiscation, and perpetual prison, the abjuration to be private in view of his quality and his reputation abroad. The monastery de Botalha was assigned as his prison, and the certificate of his delivery there is dated December 16, 1572. On the ninth, the Jues de Fisco had already received the certificate of confiscation. The perpetual prison of the Portuguese Inquisition must have been temporary, like the Spanish, for Goez is said to have died in his own house, either by apoplexy or killed by his own servants, at a date which is not known. If forty years of orthodoxy could not atone for a youthful vacillation on one or two points of faith, it can readily be estimated how potent an instrumentality was the holy office in stunting the development of Portuguese intellect. When, in August 1578, Cardinal Henrique succeeded to the crown of his grand-nephew Sebastian, he did not resign the inquisitor generalship for fifteen months. He had previously, however, on February 24, 1578, on account of age and infirmity, procured the appointment as coadjutor with the right of secession of Manuel Bishop of Coimbra, but the latter disappeared with his sovereign in the disastrous rout of Alcazar Quibir, and it was not until December 27, 1579, that, at Henrique's request, Gregory XIII replaced him with Jorge de Almeida, Archbishop of Lisbon. Henrique's death soon followed, January 31, 1580, when he passed away, universally detested and only regretted because, in the rivalry of claimants to the throne and in the exhaustion of the land through famine and pestilence, the way was open to the easy conquest by Philippe II. In the reorganization under the Spanish crown, the Inquisition was not merged with that of Castile, but was left as an independent institution under the Archbishop of Lisbon, for Gregory XIII refused the request of Philippe II for a brief adding it to the jurisdiction of the Spanish Inquisitor-General. The nomination, however, accrued to the Spanish crown, and, in 1586, on Almeida's death, the post was given to the Cardinal Archduke Albrecht of Austria, who was also governor of Portugal. With his advent, the activity of the Inquisition increased. In the twenty years, 1581 to 1600, the three tribunals held in all fifty autos de fe. Of these, the records of five are lost, but in the other forty-five, there were 162 relaxations in person, 59 in effigy, and 2,979 penitents. As the penitents, for the most part, must have suffered confiscation, we can estimate the severity of the persecution in a population so limited. Large as must have been the receipts, from the beginning, derived from the confiscations of the wealthy new Christians, they were insufficient to satisfy its exigencies, diverted as they had been by the compositions paid to the crown. 
Sebastian, in continuing this practice, satisfied his conscience by representing to Gregory XIII that the income of the Inquisition did not exceed 5,000 cruzados, which was insufficient for its support, wherefore the Pope granted to it two-thirds of the fruits of the first prebend falling vacant in each of the cathedrals of Lisbon, Evora, and Coimbra, and one-half of one in each of the other sees of the kingdom. It is probable that this evoked a sturdy resistance on the part of the churches, for it was never carried into effect and, when Philip II became master of Portugal, although the confiscations were no longer compounded for, he renewed the request, stating that 14,000 cruzados a year were requisite while the revenues did not exceed 10,000 ducats. Gregory responded with a brief of June 28, 1583, in which he renewed the grant, at the same time reducing it to one-half of a prebend in Lisbon, Evora, and Coimbra, and one-third in the other seas, nor is it likely that, under the stern rule of Philippe, the grant was allowed to be nugatory. End of section 32. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C., www.nyckidd.com.